think that every person has something that makes them uniquely them and that they do better than most people and that they enjoy it and that it comes naturally to them. And I think identifying that is tough. I think you really need to frame your mindset in terms of what you're looking for. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion, how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately, how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. This week's episode is with Chris Roth, founder and CEO of Highline Wellness, a premium direct-to-consumer CBD company that offers natural, effective, and broad-spectrum CBD. We actually don't get into the specifics of CBD in the episode because the majority of you listening are quite familiar, but for those of you who are not, CBD is a non-psychoactive part of the cannabis plant. AKA, it's the part of the plant that has medicinal benefits without getting you high. And Highline products are all broad-spectrum CBD, which means that they keep other compounds found within the plant, but they have completely removed all THC, which is the part of the plant that is psychoactive, so that there is zero confusion and full trust that their products will not get you high. I absolutely loved Chris's story, and this is one episode I will definitely go back and listen to a few times over because he offers so many amazing insights and takeaways that I definitely want to apply to my own business. Prior to starting Highline, Chris was an equity research sales director covering e-commerce, internet, consumer, and the cannabis space. And after attending a cannabis conference in LA for work about a year before anyone in New York knew what CBD was, he could not get the idea of starting a CBD brand out of his head. And he had had several other business ideas in the past, but this was one that he can absolutely not shake. As soon as he got back, he put pen to paper and decided to quit his stable high paying job on Wall Street. And not only did he quit before his employer gave him his yearly bonus, which is unheard of in the finance industry, he also asked his boss to invest. And he ended up giving him his blessing and his boss ended up being his first investor and the rest is history. On today's episode, we talk about the details of how Chris went about making his transition from working in finance to starting Highline, why building your confidence is one of the most important attributes when starting a company, having conviction and intent with what you put out in the world, how influencer marketing is the driving force for Highline, and paying attention to your natural skill sets and figuring out how to apply them to creating something that you truly, truly believe in. So with that, let's get into this week's episode with Chris Roth. Thank you so much for being on the Active Ingredient Podcast. I am a personal fan of the brand, so I'm just so excited to get in. Nice to meet you and thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I always kick off the podcast asking what you were like as a kid that you remember. It's kind of like the icebreaker question that we have on the podcast. And also because I feel like there's a lot of things from our childhood that translate into what we're doing when we're working in what we like or an industry that we're passionate about. So I just, I'm always curious to hear what you remember 
from your childhood and your personality traits that you think might be a part of your of your day to day now? Yeah, totally. I think uh, I think there are a lot of similarities. I think I was always outside. I was all, always playing sports. I didn't necessarily like school as much as I did yeah. sports, and so. <laughs> Really, any free time I had, I would play with friends. I would go outside, be riding my bike, and most of the time be playing basketball. I would play basketball pretty much all day, every day. Until I was about 12, I thought I would be a New York Knick. Um, But, yeah, that's sort of, you know, how I spent my time uh, as a kid. Were you, did you have, like, entrepreneurial qualities? Or, I guess, I'm curious to know if there's anything that you think from, like, a work perspective that you feel translated into, I guess you're inside a leader right now and you're loving the outdoors. So that definitely translate on personal, but I'm wondering like from the professional side, if there's anything that you see that is still very prevalent in your day to day now. Yeah, I think um, the, the lessons that you learn from sports and from being on a team and from learning how to lead a team is very applicable to business. And I think if you find a way to turn business into or turn your profession into a sport, then it becomes a lot more fun. It becomes a game and you sort of get used to losing, know that it's part of the game and the wins become even sweeter. Um, So yeah, just, you know, learning how to build a team, operate with others and teamwork um, to try to, you know, accomplish a common goal. I I think that's helped me throughout my career. I love that. So I want to get into your career trajectory. I'm like personally really interested in the story because my boyfriend is in a career transition right now, works in equity research and finance and is trying to do something different. And this is like my favorite part of the active ingredient, like sweet spot, like talking about what first interested you in a space that you were in. And then at what point you were like ready to kind of make that shift into an entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah. So your boyfriend and I had, we had very, I had a very similar background. I was in equity research, but I was in equity research sales. So I was working with people like your boyfriend to work with the equity that they were publishing uh, and the research that they were publishing on equities. And my job would be to sell that equity research and sell different ideas and different investment themes to hedge funds in the New York City or tri-state area both long and short. So what that means is hedge funds buy stocks. So they, they're making a bet that they go up, but Mm. for every dollar that they have long a stock or owning a stock, they also need to short a stock with the the dollar. And so really found through that, like different winners and losers in industries. And for the first couple of years, I spent my time studying e-com and the shift from brick and mortar to online shopping. Mm-hmm. And it all began with Amazon. In 2015, we made a call that Amazon would become the biggest retailer by 2017. Everyone thought we were crazy. We got a ton of pushback on that. And I think they became the biggest retailer by the end of 2016. And it happened quicker than even we could have imagined. And so I think through that experience, I was able to feel comfortable being the only one in the room that believed something and had conviction. And in the stock market specifically, if everyone thinks a stock is going to go up 10% and then they release quarterly earnings and the stock is up, uh, it goes up 10% sales year over year, stock's going to be flat. 
In the right. stock market, you need to have a differentiated view than everyone else to, to do really well and to get good returns. And so that experience, I think, helped me um, really just understand how to analyze different industries, analyze different companies, and also understand what investors were looking for in companies. And also like and, flexing that, like trusting your gut muscle. You know, if you're if you're getting it right time after time, like the second that you think of an idea to start a business, you're going to be able to trust your intuition and go for it, you know? You took the words right out of my mouth. Is is for me, it I think one of the most important things you can have, especially as an entrepreneur, is self-awareness. And so for me, I had to get convicted in my own skill set. And so it took a couple years of, you know what, I think that that actually could happen. Um, I like, I disagree on that. And then see it play out and it happens. And so for your own internal track record, you start to gain confidence. And that's what happened to me. And so I became more comfortable if everyone thought something, but my research and my age sort of gave me a different insight into how they were thinking about it, specifically with online stores. Most of the people that are moving the market and are, are managing a lot of money are 40 years old right. or 40 plus. And so if at the time I was 25, I saw the little nuances within social media or online shopping and brand discovery that was occurring on Instagram before they were seeing it. And so if I saw a difference in perception versus reality and something that I felt I knew more than perhaps the market, mm -hmm. that's where I sort of found my niche and my stride within Callen. And so in order- How long were you there for? I was there for six years. It was my only job ever. It was the best experience I could have had. I worked with people that truly believed in me. And the thing I love about Cowan relative to other investment banks in, you know, all over is they're big enough where, you know, they're extremely successful bank. They have amazing talent there. They have great products, but they're not so big where they get to sort of avoid the bureaucratic part of the really big banks. And what I mean by that is if I were to go to Goldman Sachs, if I were to go to JP Morgan, all the really big banks, you have after two years an opportunity to get promoted. And then after that, you have three year period. Well, you, then you'll be up for a promotion. That is so and not for me. Like that cookie cutter, every single person has to go through the same trajectory is just, I, f I just don't think that that's the way of 2020 and beyond. It's just impossible anymore. You know, it reminds me of school. Yeah. And I don't think that's the, the itinerary and that specific setup is conducive for somebody to give you their best work. Mm -hmm. Because if you, know, you can crush it, this whole year, but you have two more years after that until you can get promoted. Like it's a lot harder to go to work and absolutely right. It's not incentivizing when you know that the catalyst is coming in two and a half years. One thousand percent. The thing I loved about Cowan was that they were agnostic to age, and so I was there for six years. I was promoted five times, and they gave me all the freedom in the world to use the things the tools i wanted to use to you know produce and at the end of the day you need to put points up on the scoreboard and you need to produce and you need to execute but mm -hmm. how did that they were agnostic to and 
I mean, I could not think of a better employer. Amazing. So that's a long-winded sort of entrance into how cannabis developed and into the whole. That was one of my questions. Like, did you have foresight and say, like, "Hey, guys, we need to have this as an entire industry that we need to be covering," and that came from you, or was that direction coming from Cow and being like, "We want you to head that." I I had a little pull, but not that much. I couldn't. I couldn't get them into a new industry, but to their credit and to their uh, upper management's credit, they saw it before anyone else saw it. And they were the first bank to an equity research um, analyst within our department who had been studying uh, tobacco and alcohol rolled out on cannabis, a hundred page report and it was the first U.S. investment bank to start re- write, writing research on cannabis. We were doing it as, as you know, the federal law in the U.S. does not is not mm-hmm. legal to sell THC in all fifty states. Yeah. There, at the time of that report, there were eight states within the U.S. that were legal, and we used those eight states and the data from the government and hard data to decipher the economical impact, the social impact, what it was replacing. And it pretty much just confirmed everything that A, I sort of thought was happening, but B, was seeing amongst my friends in New York where people were drinking less and they were consuming more cannabis. So the volume of beers, the volume of drinks on a per night basis was going down and it uh, c- cannabis consumption was replacing that, which is so consistent with what you see on Saturday night if you go to an apartment in mm-hmm. New York City. It, it's become normalized. It's it's right there. The other part that I found interesting was roughly within a county that goes legal uh, on a recreational level, within 24 months, opioid morbidity drops by close to 10%. So that statistic tells you once people have access to cannabis and have it readily available, they are less likely to use opioids and pills to find uh, whatever medical benefit or whatever relief they're looking for. And then the third was the economical impact of Mm -hmm. the tax benefits and to use that towards good things and, and, not only building out infrastructure for cities and now, you know, trying to crawl back the deficits, but it's also a broken system in the sense where there's hundreds of thousands of incarcerated um, Americans that mm-hmm. are in jail right now, some for 30 years for selling a joint to a cop in 1984. Mm-hmm. And so that is completely broken. And using the tax revenue to help fight legislation to get them out of incarceration. I really resonated with me. And I, is that happening though? Like, is that actually happening across the board? Like, how are we ensuring that that's, that that is what's happening with the tax money? So it is not happening across the board. That is dependent on what state, depending on what sort of municipality you're Mm -hmm. referring to, they use the tax new differently, but there is a big push with bipartisan support right now that we need to reform our prison system. We need to reform the way we think about incarceration because there are 
10 billion legal sales of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Canada, US, and people are making millions and billions of dollars. But yeah. yet the same action, but on a smaller scale, somebody is in jail for 30 years, it's broken. And 100%. So there is mutual, I think, agreement that that needs to be reformed, how it has, you know, 12 to 18 months. But right now there's more momentum in this favor than there has ever been. And there's been more spotlight shown on this, um, specifically since the killing of George Floyd and Mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, absolutely. I want to come back to this point because I think it's probably the most important conversation to be had in the cannabis space today. But before that, I the podcast is really super career focused. And I, I am curious to know, even before getting to Cowan, like what was it that interested you from the finance perspective? Like what what did you see for yourself? What did you think that your long-term game was going to be going into finance? Um, and then also like while you were there, while you were seeing all these data points in the cannabis space specifically, like at what point did you start thinking about potentially going out on your own and start and starting something? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I got to, so I started in this, in wall street in an internship that I got through an across alumni that, um, I interned my junior year of college mm-hmm. and that was an amazing experience. And it not only gave me access to what that lifestyle was like, but it also gave me access to the city and the energy there. And I became, you know, I was like, all right, this is what I'm doing. So I dedicated, you know, worked my tail off to network while I was at my senior year of college so that I secured a job and I started in September of 2012. Even before that, let's go back. Like why, why did you even go for that in, for that internship in the first place? Oh, because the it was high pace team environment, and so okay. uh, you're on you're on a trading floor, and there are twenty people within fifteen cubic yards of you, mm-hmm. and they're all alone. They're all screaming. There's fifteen different situations going on. You need to be aware of everything that's going on, but also mm-hmm. be able to produce. And it was yeah. it was it was a crazy environment that satisfied my like need to feel, um, you know, adrenaline. Like alive, yeah. Exactly. It was the closest thing for me to replace sports. Because after college, it was the first time I didn't play competitive sports in my whole life. And so for me, it gave me that competitive nature where, you know, it, it was really like a scoreboard. I was a sales guy. I just had to bring in and execute sales. And mm-hmm. a simple job and... I like that part of it. And I also like the team aspect. So I was on a team of four people, four amazing people. We all complemented each other well and held each other accountable where I thought that was super important. And it gave me, it gave me sort of the next level of the teamwork approach on the professional level mm-hmm. where, Hey, you got to have, you have people relying on you. Like you need to hold your weight. You need to be a good partner to all of them. And like, together you guys will succeed way more than as an individual yeah so i really liked all of those things the one thing about finance is on an average day like three four days a week i was getting up at 4 30 in the morning doing a 5 a.m barry's boot camp in the office by 6 30 then out to dinner at 6 30 then to the nick game and home at 11 and that is constant 
Like and that's like not, if you're not sustainable. <laughs> if you're like, not doing that, you're yeah. not doing your job well. <laughs> and so you in order to like produce in order to earn a seat, you need to be doing those things. And it does take a toll. It really does take a toll. That's where, you know, I started having anxiety for the first time in my life. Like I think as a product of that lifestyle, not, I mean, a hundred percent. Yeah. But yeah, there's no way there, that's not I liked it. it. You know, I became self-aware. I would say I was 23 or 24. I was working there for two years and I would think back to my lacrosse days and we lost our last game in like a brutal fashion. What by one goal to a team we should not have lost. I was the captain of the team. Like it, I can take responsibility for the loss. And it like it sucks to have regret and like, damn, I wish I would have done it differently. And I realized for me there, like my biggest fear is regret. And so I tried to reverse engineer like what I would tell myself as a 23 or 24 year old, if I'm looking back, just like I am looking back at lacrosse days and what I'm telling myself, like without sort of a, a, a push, like what would I tell myself if I'm 40 right now, looking back, what would I say? And the first thing is like, care make sure you build healthy strong relationships with your family and spend time with them and really invest in building those relationships as great as they can be the second thing was take a risk like you have your whole job you have your whole life to um work Mm -hmm. and to get another job a dream of mine had always been starting a company I think I had always sort of relied on, I always thought that there'd be one of my friends who'd be like, Hey, I'm starting the company. You want to be, you want to do it with me? And I would be a beneficiary of that. But 24 came along. I was looking around. It's like, you know, there's not, I don't know if one of my friends is going to be this person to do that. And I made a commitment to myself at like 24. And I told all my friends, like I'm out of this by 30. Out of Wall Street by 30. Why 30? Just to give yourself a deadline or just to save a certain amount of money? Like what was the thought? So 30, because if I failed, I would still be young enough to rebuild my career or go back into finance or it wasn't, and I didn't. Do you think that's true still today? Like if you were to leave something in the 30 age range, like, that you could go back to it and still get that same seat. Because I think that one thing that I tackle a lot on this podcast is that identity shift also. Like you've built your whole career, building those relationships, having earned that seat, being doing that every single day to then have an identity shift. Like everyone sees you as Chris, the equity research sales guy, and like trusts you for that. Like to then shift completely going to the entrepreneurial realm and then come back. Like what's the, what's like the identity psyche situation going on in your head that you're like willing to give it up and then have the actual confidence that you will come back if you have to, you know, I don't know if I'm I'm even asking a question here, but it's like, yeah, I know exactly. I, I think I, I completely am with you. Um, this is also assuming failure and that I would have to come back. And mm-hmm. so that was a conscious 
part of how I handled my exit. And so finance, you get paid more than 50% of your compensation in the form of a bonus that is calculated on January 1st after the year ends. I went into my president's office in September and said, I'm, I'm leaving. I know nobody leaves the last three months of the year because you only have one more quarter until you get paid half your compensation. But I've been here for six months, uh, six years. You guys have given me an amazing opportunity. I would not sleep well if I took that check and quit the next day. So I'm going to be upfront. I'm leaving. I'm going to pursue this and I would love for you to invest. And, wow. Wow. And so he, if there were anyone on Wall Street or any investors that understood the opportunity at that point in time, it would be the Cowan people because they were the only ones that were privy to the research. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't familiar with CBD at the time, but they did trust me by that time. And so he, he replied, you're crazy. Go find, go find your replacement. We'll give you 30 days in those 30 days. Don't you can work from your desk here on this new idea. Just find your replacement. And when you find your replacement, we'll chat. And so I found my replacement in like seven to 10 days. She's incredible. She's still there. She's probably far expanding um, what I built and even crushing it even more, which is exactly what you want in a replacement. Mm-hmm. And when I left, she, um, my, the president decided to invest $100,000. Um, and at that point in time, I wasn't necessarily looking to raise money. I felt I had enough saved up, which is a brutal brutal mistake and brutal miscalculation <laughs> that I set it off the ground on my own. But everyone then said, Hey, if you can raise money, use, use what you have, save it. Like you're going to risk your life to take this chance. Like raising money is, is, is a good thing. And once he was in, everyone else said, Cowan was like, huh? Well, like he got in. And then that really was the catalyst to get, we raised $650,000 through friends and family before we launched. And that was really the catalyst. And I, was this? This was, uh, sorry, this was September, 2018, like right after Labor Day weekend. Like, so there were like, I mean, there were a few products out there. Like the Sunday scaries were out recess probably had launched. Right. Yes. Sunday series was out. Recess not pot was out. Launch. Not pot. We beat like to market by like a month. It was very oh, okay. similar timing. Uh, Lord Jones, Charlotte's Web. They were all great companies. That, but there were a few. Is what I'm trying to refer to. Like, I'm trying to like think of it in the space of what was out there versus today. You know. The, the reason why we did it quick and that there was, you know, an uh, like a time value, a time value of money where there was an opportunity cost to wait. We, that we didn't want to take because what we found is 
in June 2018, I was out in LA at a cannabis conference through Cowan, and I was introduced to CBD there. Everyone in LA was taking it, and it seemed like they were taking it on a daily basis. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, it's the part of the weed plant that does not get you high, and it just chills you out and helps with anxiety. And I took it, and I was like, whoa, like, this, this works. I came back to New York. This was still in the spring and not one person in New York knew what it was. And anybody that had tried it was getting it from out West. And so they had actually thought, most people had thought it wasn't even legal to buy in New York. It was, it was a gray area Mm -hmm. that I sort of thought about from, it was like, I remember telling my friends at a dinner that I wanted to do this on June 1st, 2018. Like directly after this conference. Yes. Like it was like stream of conscious. Like I I really think there's community here. Like I, I like really curious about it. And they all just laugh. I remember they're like, so you're going to quit your good job in finance. Go sell weed. (laughs) You're like, like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) who's laughing now. (laughs) And so, they're, so they're all invested. All those friends at that dinner are now invested. And so it does come full circle. Um, mm-hmm. It really does. I saw it firsthand. And I think the one thing we didn't touch on in terms of my old profession was Cowan uh, and Tilray. And so right when mm. we started, once we released that um, first initial research report, it was sort of accompanied by a road trip from a management team that was from Canada called Tilray. And we were, as salespeople, responsible for introducing the management team to New York City investors with the idea of, in a couple years, they're going to go public and they need shareholders that will support that deal and invest in the company and believe in the long-term vision. And so I called my clients and I'm like, hey, we have a cannabis company in town. would you like to take an hour with them? I can bring lunch over tomorrow and you can meet them. And they're like, dude, what's going on? I can that you have a canvas company and got laughed at fast forward. That was in 2016. Fast forward two years later, they IPO would um, in August of 2018 on the NASDAQ first company ever. And it, the stocks opened at 20 and eventually went to $300. And sort of during that mania and during that craze, that's where I was like, okay. Like, I have to get on this ship. <laughs> I'm curious to know from that like June 1st dinner that you were like, I'm setting out to do this. You went to that conference, you're super hyped up. You're like, absolutely it's worth taking the risk i'm wondering also if you've also had other ideas to start companies and this is the first one that stuck like we can get into that but i'm also curious to know like from that dinner to when you resigned in september what did you do during that time like what were the tangible things that you did to make it so when you resigned you felt comfortable that you had some sort of game plan to go after matt i think that's like the probably the most important question we'll get to in this whole podcast is there's nobody that's going to take you out to lunch and be like, Hey, I think you should quit your job 
you should ask your employers and then you should ask all your friends and raise a couple million bucks and start a cannabis company when 50% of the people you ask think it's legal. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever going to tell you that. Yeah. And so that conviction and that confidence has to come from within. And I think achieving that conviction and achieving that confidence level is something that's different for everyone. And for me, it came down to doing research. And so I was fortunate because I could do research on CBD as part of my job. And so I was explicitly doing research on CBD as well as educating my clients on it from June 1st to August 20th when I left for vacation. And I, if you bring up an industry right now, I think like I have business I think would work in that industry. That's just the way my mind sort of works. And that's been like that since I was 24 where I wanted to create a company. But I would think about an idea for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and then it would fade. And so it it wasn't their top of mind. Whereas this idea, I tried to disprove it in any way, shape, or form that I could and try to poke holes in it, tried to find legal problems with it, tried to find everything wrong with it. And I I couldn't. And I kept on thinking about it, kept on thinking about it. And the actual process of like thinking about it to quitting wasn't very well thought out. It wasn't, it wasn't very, it was a little in a sense like like a you know brief and sort of it was just like a almost a rash decision based mm-hmm. on I'd gone on vacation and spent about two weeks away and for me traveling helps me a see different cultures see different perspectives and it allows me to then take a step back from my life and mm-hmm. not be in such a bubble where you can actually see and objectively like look at your life and your own behavior and what makes you happy, what makes you not happy. Yeah, you I got always super helpful for tra- travel. And at, while I was traveling, I was like, I made the commitment. Okay. When I get home, I'm going to go pen to paper and actually put it in motion in terms of finding a lawyer, finding how much it would be to supply finding a supplier, finding a shipper. And I started doing that. Like I got home from like at like nine o'clock at night. And usually from those trips takes you about three or four days to get back in neutral. I got home at nine and just started uh, working. And I actually stayed up until like 4am and slept through my alarm. So I came late to work first day. Don't think twice about it. They don't care. Second day, I come in late again. I worked on it until 4 a.m. and I could not stop working on it. And even at work, I was working on it. And so I come in two days later around. My boss, hey, man, like, you're doing great. You're you're doing really well. But for your own personal brand, like, I would, the morning meetings important, I would really make an effort. I'm like, you're 100% right. I, I should be there. My bad. Like, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. It happened. I came in late third day. 
And I was not planning on quitting, but he gave me a look and I was like, I, I just got to tell him. And so I brought him into his office and explained to him everything. Then I explained to my team everything and they understood it. They didn't necessarily see it, but they did have confidence in me and my ability to see it because I was working on cannabis more mm-hmm. so than they were. And they gave me nothing but support and they all invested and, you know, so wanted, yeah, the quitting, the anticipation is usually worse than the reality. Yeah. But in, yeah, in order to, you're going to pitch your idea to 50, 100, 200 people over time. And just the raw facts are if you pitch it to a hundred people, it's going to resonate with maybe five. And so you're going to have 95 people out of every hundred looking at you like you're crazy. And so in order to have conviction and stay confident through that, I always went back to my knowledge about the CBD space, the research that I had done, the, and also the anecdotal evidence from talking to the biggest companies in the world on what they were looking for in terms of brands, specifically in New York, specifically within the US. And I felt like I had a roadmap to create a company that there was a need for in the market. And then the second part of that is, okay, do you have the tools to execute on whichever type of company you're trying to start? Yeah. And then that goes back to self-awareness and, and building the right team. So when you are thinking about actually like the next steps of building it and, and envisioning what this product looks like, and there are a few of, of the players that we talked about that were already in the market, what were you thinking of in terms of differentiating? And what were you thinking of like in terms of when people thought of Highline Wellness, what, what were the three things that you wanted people to know when they heard of Highline? Yeah, we so we felt as consumers that the process of buying CBD was was not like other industries, and that there's also data that suggests that it was very different than other industries in terms of consumer behavior. Whereas you look at any industry online consumables, um, from retail to food to mm-hmm. really everything, almost sixty five, so like two thirds of all of the global sales, or oh, sorry, all of the U.S. sales of that industry is occurring on brick and mortar. Uh, sorry, yes, is occurring brick and mortar, and online is thirty-five percent, but going to fifty within very mm-hmm. short amount of time. CBD specifically was at ninety-five percent brick and mortar, five percent online, and so from a macro perspective, we're taking we want to position ourselves online because that's going to be the shared gainer rather than the shared donor. So mm-hmm. that over time, we don't want to be tied to brick and mortar in a, in a space that is shrinking relative. Yeah. hundred percent, especially now. Yeah, exactly. We want to be in a space that's going to be growing over time. And right now the market's not that big, but we had confidence the market would come to us if, if we create an e-bound company. Mm-hmm. And so we want it to be accessible so we found prices were really expensive. And so we wanted it to be accessible pricing. We wanted it to be convenient and we wanted it to be a trusted partner. And so 
there was a lot of CBD companies, especially in New York, where they're being sold in bodegas, they're being sold in gas stations, and they're being sold in places where the highest uh, priced product in that store is Juul. And so we don't want to be in distribution channels where the highest priced product is Juul. We want to be in distribution channels where we could have idiosyncratic pricing and our brand is not necessarily associated with all the rest of the CBD community. And so we always want our product and our brand to be introduced by a trusted source. And so that is dual pronged. It's brick and mortar, but it's also online and through influencers and brand ambassadors or family and friends or anything. And not to like mention that. that like the CBD also has the uphill battle of not even being able to advertise in a traditional way. So it's like you're hitting two birds, one stone. Yeah. Because I mean, it is a space that needs a little bit of education and convincing. And if I'm hearing it from someone that I trust, I'm more likely to try it. And if my mom is trying it, that means that you're doing something right because the CBD space, obviously like for our parents' generation is like a little bit harder to get into. So I I see that as like making traction, but at the same time, like you don't really have another option of how to get the word out because it's not, I I mean, I don't know if the laws changed, but last I heard you, you can't advertise, right? Yes. Uh, short answer. Yes. There's ways around it. We get kicked off like once a month. Um, it, it's yeah, it's not, it's not worth our time anymore. But um, I mean, yeah, I think that the more important thing is, is that that is the way to change consumer behavior is to have someone trusted tell you that it works, you know? We cannot agree more. Yeah. That's, that's really the goal that we were, or the problem that we were trying to solve is creating a trusted brand that gets to you quickly when you order it and that has quality products for accessible prices. So we found a lot of the brands out West that great brands, but when you order it online, it came in two weeks Mm -hmm. and they weren't set up logistically for e-com. They were focused on store count and same thing with even brands in on the East coast where we came out and did free two day shipping right away. And I think it, when we were creating our website and how we would operate, we didn't really look at any CBD brands. We looked at DTC companies that we all know and love, like the Casper of the world or the Allbirds of the world or the Quip toothpaste, uh, toothbrushes of the world, like mm-hmm. brands that have showed proof of concept that have, that have scaled in, you know, adjacent industries, but that, would be applicable to how we thought about creating our business. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the reasons we had success from the start is just because relative to the other um, CBD companies, if you wanted online quick, we were one of the only places to get it, you know, for a while. Now there's many more, but just being sort of ahead of those consumer trends and those consumer behaviors um, you know, worked out for us. And I think it's we, like specifically for a category like CBD, similar to the spirits industry. Like it's not something that you're like, oh, you know what? I think I want a red wine in 72 hours. It's like, no, I want 
CBD now. <laughs> like exactly. It, it's like for a lot of things, like you're cool waiting that week, but like for something that you're literally buying for anxiety, like you're looking to call that as soon as possible, you know? So I think you're, you're spot on with that. We, that's exactly how, how we were thinking about it as well. Yeah. And then we, so we try never to make big bets without mm-hmm. testing it. And so going into the launch, our hypothesis was that influencer marketing would be the best way around all of the rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. So we tested that by sending out 150 samples to our friends, family, influencers, and pretty much everyone we we knew in our network that mm-hmm. had Instagram that had, you know, it could have been a thousand followers from Westchester or it could have been 2.4 million followers from LA. Mm-hmm. And it was who we could get, you know, address that expressed interest in the product. And we sent them out print that was our launch strategy. No advertising. No, we just sent out our uh, 150 boxes in boxes that were Instagrammable, which we thought at the time, looking <laughs> back, they're horrible. <laughs> and we pretty much, you know, saw who liked it and every, almost all 150 people posted. Posted around it. So that, just a picture, congrats, like Highline Wellness. And that acquired our first 1,500 customers. And that not only showed proof of concept for influencers, that that was a strategy and that was the customer acquisition strategy, but it also gave us insight into which crowds that it resonated with most and who drew the most traffic. Yeah. Based on who their followers were and what kind of content they were posting. And so it was a, you know, it was a really valuable learning process that mm-hmm. we ended up just taking. And now we're constantly expanding and refining and doing collabs with different influencers and influencers you're, you're killing and- it with it. I work in the space and I'm, I'm, I'm very, very impressed with who you're choosing, how you're rolling it out. I think it's, Amazing. I'm excited to see who you have next. I'm curious to know, um, just because I I saw the brand, what it looked like before the rebrand. And I think that this is also just as maybe not as important as like the moment that you do that first leap into starting your business, but it is really important to put something out there, like launch fast, adjust after. I want to know at what point you thought about rebranding the look and feel of Highline. And like, I think that the big thing for a lot of entrepreneurs is that you can put something out there and like be married to that first look. And you think that people only remember you as that one thing. Like, how did you come to the conclusion that you needed to rebrand? And then what, like what, what not failed, but like what wasn't working as well? And what did you set out to do with the rebrand? Yeah, great question. I think that it, it for us, it was obviously, it was a massive undertaking mm-hmm. and we totally uh, underestimated how big of an undertaking it was. Mm-hmm. But it was also the best decision, one of the best decisions we've made. And I, I think we launched the brand knowing that we were going to do a rebrand within the first year. And oh, really? The reason I said that, yeah, because one of my things is, 
like it goes back to um, what we spoke about before. One of our core rules is don't bet big on tests. And so when you apply to it, um, apply to it for launch, we didn't know who our customer was going to be. We didn't know who was going to use it. We didn't know that who it was going to resonate with. And so we tried to spend as least time as possible coming up with the brand. We, I, I, we created it. We're not brand people. We just thought it was cool and we launched it. And we literally said, let's just learn. This is, so um, MVP, very important, is minimal viable product. If you love your first product, you're late. You waited too long. You should never love your first product. You should find a product that is quality, that will attract first-time customers, but it's also good enough to retain them and have them coming back. But from a branding and ethos perspective, we didn't need to have it perfect. We wanted to confirm that there's a market and that, okay, this is real. It was worth investing before, in rebrand, yeah. And before working with a branding agency and spending real money on something where it might, like we thought it was going to be a male-focused brand. The first the first packaging was black with blue and white. It like mm -hmm. had a masculine vibe to it. And so be it three months in 65 to almost 70% of our customers were women. And so we. Oh, wait, you cut out. Give ourselves. Like, wait, we sorry. Bet Can you say it again? You just cut out for a second. Yeah. So the last thing you said was that it was 75% women. Okay. Yeah. So the brand that we created was, it was masculine. It was black, it was blue. And what we found out three months in was 65 to 70% of our customers were women. And so if we bet big doing what we thought was going to happen, which would be a male brand we're you know, we just wasted all that money and now we got to find a way to pivot to, you know, a more uh, gender neutral approach and so we used all of that data and all of what we learned for the first by the time we started we had been in business for six months and farron from fahrenheit is the one who um did our rebrand and ran the whole crushed project it. for us she absolutely crushed it we worked with her for six months she submersed into our business our culture our team and she pretty much listened to what we imagined Highline Wellness being and then actualized it. And so we launched the rebrand about nine months after launching the original brand. And it looked it's it looks like a completely different company. And so I'm curious to know like the exact moment though that you were like, okay, after those first six months, like at what point in that were you like, okay, now it's time to do a rebrand? Like for, think about the person that's listening that might be in that phase right now. Like what, what was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back that you were like, okay, I'm ready to pull the trigger. It, it was the, I'm trying to think if there's a catalyst where like somebody like said, I don't know, Brandy's like, <laughs> like, like, what's up? I, I think it, it, 
I don't think it was necessarily like catalyst driven where it, there was like a straw that broke the camel's back where like, well, we have to do a rebrand. It was more of an offensive move rather than a defensive move. We were still doing great. Nobody really cared, truly. But we looked at other DTC brands and I mean, we looked very different and we needed a facelift. And so based on all the things that we had learned, we wanted to do it from an offensive move and get it out of the way so that it's not looming over our heads. Mm -hmm. And I think we got to a point where, okay, there's real business here. We can now afford to do it. Let's get it over with. And it's a six month process. But one of our, you know, core sort of beliefs and thought processes, if we're doing the same thing for like a month or even two months, we're wrong. Like we have to always be adjusting and complacency is the first step to, I think, um, you know, not fulfilling your potential in terms of your business. And so we always try to be proactive on how we can prove, you know, what does that look like on a tactical level? Like, are you having like these kind of like, let's take a step back meetings once a month? Like, what does that actually look like? I think it's where it's more. Yes, we have those meetings. It's more than once a month, but it's we've come up with processes where any pretty much any like outward spend or any investment that we're making, we have a way to calculate whether that is is a success or a failure. And a lot of times when we're talking about constantly improving, the way we calculate if it's success or uh, failure is the thing that we're improving. And so the, the more insight onto being able to attribute ROI and being able to really identify that if you have 50 brand ambassadors or influencers posting in a week, how do you know which one drove value and how do you know which one did not drive value? Mm -hmm. And so being able to come up with processes and as a team, having a culture of not only accepting mistakes and failures, but encouraging them is, was the key to the game to, for this to start working and for us to become self-aware and always be improving. Because if you can't, for me as a CEO, I need to, and I, I do, when I, when I have an idea and it doesn't work, I'm the first one to tell everyone, okay, this did not work. This was my thought process. This is where I got it wrong. And next time, I think if we avoid doing this, we'll have a better outcome and we can do that. It's so important. And I've taken, for, for, I thought it was important for me to own that so that everyone else, our whole team becomes comfortable doing that. And now we're at the point where everyone feels comfortable and knows that mistakes are expected. And if we're not making mistakes, it means we're moving way too slow. And everyone has that mutual understanding of mistakes are okay, but making the same mistake twice is not okay. So building this framework to operate within that encourages creativity, new ideas without being 
penalized or, or thought differently for doing that or having that idea and trying to execute on that is, is something where we've settled in really nicely now and I think contributes to, you know, be always evolving. I love that. What I just, on the influencer note, I wonder what resonates more, where do you see more ROI on doing a brand collaboration or influencer collaboration on an actual product or just having an influencer talk about the product, but not necessarily co-create something with you? Yeah. So I think it's, we we haven't co-created too many products. So we've co-created two, um, one like officially and one through Danielle with the relief roller, um, Mm -hmm. Danielle Bernstein, we wore what with the relief roller that wasn't necessarily Highline Wellness X. Danielle Bernstein, it was more of she's a strategic advisor mm-hmm. where she's been essentially part of our founding team from, I think she joined like two weeks after we launched. Wow. So she was one of the influencers that we had sent products to. She had loved the product. We started doing a cash deal at first where she promoted our product um, to her followers for cash. and. Mm-hmm. About a month in, her followers loved the product. She was obsessed with the products. It was helping with her anxiety. And we brought her on to our advisory board, one of our first advisors, um, to now she's permanently with the company. And mm-hmm. so that was the product formulated by her that she does the storytelling and it's super successful. And most of our brand ambassadors, you know, promoting the products, yeah, they're they're super effective. I think we've done a good job of identifying the the right people mm-hmm. that have true followers that are. It's all about intent, mm-hmm. and Instagram has a lot of different content. Like, there's an influencer for every piece of the world. Mm-hmm. There's somebody where if you want to go and learn how to make chairs, there's somebody on Instagram that's teaching you how to make chairs. And so it's about identifying the right people that have the followers that are following them for product, brand, and lifestyle advice, Mm -hmm. rather than other different reasons that, you know, you can someone when you're doing the actual, like the Hannah Brothman bath bomb versus just having influencers talk about the existing product. Like, do you think that the influencer is more incentivized to talk about it more consistently? And then that's why maybe that works better. Or do you think that they're equal in terms of ROI? So I, they're not apples to apples. So it's a, it's a, it is a tough question to answer. I would say in terms of the, the overall buzz and the overall, um, audience boost and customer acquisition is Hannah's the the collaboration with Hannah was it was amazing. perfect like I, from the marketing on PRI I was like wow like this brand is doing it right we we I definitely am and we really appreciate that um working with her was amazing she has an amazing team she is incredibly talented. Mm-hmm. Um, her, she's you know pregnant, recently pregnant, and so we absolutely love her. Loved working with her, and the collab was an incredible success. And so we are trying to replicate that collab 
um, you know, and just sort of apply that same ideology to more and more collabs because well, it's, it's a little different than influencer marketing where they're promoting a certain product because you are creating something that is brand new this in, in this sense it's a bath bomb and so the storytelling process behind how it was created the different ingredients that go into it and the way we bring it to market also is worthy of pr press and sort of different parts of our funnel that all get sort of activated when you have a catalyst like that mm-hmm. and so from there's 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 different levels but from a brand collab like the one we did with Hannah, that for us is, that's how we make the biggest splash. That's I think how... that's going to be the new influencer economy in a post-pandemic space. I think that if a brand is smart, that is how they're going to be doing their influencer marketing moving forward. I think you still have like the the people that are promoting what you have existing and have that continue to be a part of it. But I think that this collaboration culture is going to be like, and not have to have like the massive, massive 7 million follower influencer do it, but have the person that has the engaged following, maybe smaller, that would never have the opportunity of creating a product to begin with and leveraging their community, you know? Hundred percent, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Hannah um, is unique. Where I don't know exactly how many followers she has, but upwards, close to a million seven hundred. Mm-hmm. And they are people that are following her, looking for fitness advice, looking for diet advice, looking for wellness advice. And their intent is there, and the reason why they're following is very consistent with the product that we created. So from a product market fit, we thought it was a great opportunity. And then to your point, you can always amplify those collaborations by having your other long-term brand ambassadors. There's a new product that you can send them. And if they like it, then we'll talk about it with their followers. And word of mouth is the other thing that we heavily, heavily rely on. Uh, I'm curious to know, because I feel like also the rate and review culture is especially now more than ever top of mind for most direct-to-consumer brands. Um, And I noticed that you guys have really strong reviews on the site. How do you go about that? Like, how do you incentivize a regular customer that that you're not having be a brand investor or whoever? Like, how do you incentivize people to do those reviews? You know what? I have to check. I don't. I I want to start incentivizing people where you give them five dollars off their next purchase, but mm-hmm. I don't think we're incentivizing them as of right now. Wow. And so we like we just and this sounds so cliche, but we just try to do the right thing in terms of customer service. Like we we want to be like Apple ten years ago with customer service where doesn't matter what happened to your phone. If you went in, you're getting your phone replaced for free. Mm-hmm. And the amount of like, like equity, like the amount of goodwill that they got from consumers during that time is something that I thought was noteworthy mm-hmm. where 
we just try to have the most friendly customer service where if, if it, you know, sometimes it melts, we're obviously sending you a brand new product. Right. But even if you're on vacation and it doesn't get there in time and you left early, we'll send you another product to your house. Like the customer really is never wrong. And hopefully too many people are not watching this. So they don't. <laughs> email you're going to have to give a lot but, of free highline to you. <laughs> exactly. And then I think um, really like, being charitable and having that as a core contributor to our um, our strategy mm-hmm. earns goodwill with people and it allows them to see who's behind the brand and what we stand for. This year, we're excited. We've donated more than $75,000 uh, cash to charities and we've donated tens of thousands of products to charities. So having that be a part of our culture and Having that be immediate and real term where, you know, on March 15th, New York City schools were shut down. On March 15th, we announced that 10% of sales will go to New York City food banks. And so we're nimble and we're always looking for communities that can need help. And we try to give them help in any way we can in the form of products, in the form of capital, in the form of charitable donations, like everything that we can it. do to help them. We do. I think that gains brand equity over time with mm-hmm. consumers where they, they review because they feel appreciative that they found a pro- product that is helping them sleep better at night. And yeah. that is boosting their anxiety and they're thankful for that. Yeah. But and like I by buying it, they're also doing something good for the world. So if you had two products and one of them was, they're both good products. One of them was a uh, a company that aligns with your morals and is paying back towards the charity that you're passionate about. Like why it's a no brainer, you know, I love that. So back to the, um, criminal justice system and just the cannabis space in general, how do you guys tackle that head on? Various different ways. Um, it's, it is tough, um, to tackle it head on the cannabis community does not have the lobbying power and it doesn't have the capital that is required to make a splash in Washington. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to do everything in our to a donate to the right charities, but also lead the educational um, program within our local governments and our state governments and to start educating people around why cannabis is illegal in the first place and who made it illegal mm-hmm. and what the ramifications have been that have essentially this, this, these laws and marijuana being illegal has facilitated our pri- prison industrial system. Most people don't even understand that because it, it's, it's generational in terms of when it was um, made, mm-hmm. made illegal and a lot of times, you know, we have very short memories. And so up until 1937, cannabis was legal, but then they made, uh, they legalized alcohol. Right. Right. And they didn't have anyone to, to get in trouble. And right. there was no one to incarcerate. Right. And then it goes yeah. back to the war on drugs, but it's just, it's just, I think of any person going into the CBD space right now, I'm assuming that has to be top of mind, especially as a white male founder that like, you have to be keeping that top of mind with every single thing that you're doing now more than ever. Um, 
Is there anything that you think that would be helpful for our audience that is a CBD consumer that we could be doing from a micro level to help if you don't have like the capital or, or not you specifically, but just the space in general, like what could we be doing as CBD consumers? Cause I think that yes, we should be pressuring brands to be doing it, but also if you're consuming CBD and from a place of privilege, like how can we be advocating, you know? It, it is a great question. It, the way we're thinking about it is that THC is, this is really like the, the next step. And so THC is going to be the CBD of the next couple of years, especially on the East Coast, where there's already a massive community of people that use it. But as states go legal, the legislation that is required for that to happen is all around incarceration and equal opportunity in terms of um, the, uh, the employees of the cannabis companies and the beneficiaries of the cannabis companies. And so to your point, as a white founder, this is something we've been conscious of and that we've been thinking about for a while. There are a lot of bureaucratic hurdles that you need to get over mm -hmm. um, in order to make a change. But as we think about THC and as we start strategizing for THC, we may create another brand and that brand would be explicitly dedicated to reforming the prison system and to we may create our own or we may partner with a well-known charity that is dedicated towards providing resources to a past legislation that would expunge all these criminals, mm -hmm. but B to actually use for legal bills to fight for parole right. and things like that. the last prisoner project is a charity that I would look into and do your homework on. And if you have, if you're looking to donate towards worthy causes, mm -hmm. that is the that we want to partner with. Cool. Yes. And, and they provide on their website, they provide research um, based on all the statistics of nonviolent criminals that are in jail that are mostly minorities and, yeah. all, you know, all, all of those important statistics. So I want to know from your perspective today, what would you say your active ingredient is? What is like the, the deeper reason why you love what you're doing or, or you seem to be loving what you're doing with Highline? Um, yeah, I just would love to know what your personal active ingredient is today. Yeah, so for me, I like being in, um, it's, I think, two dual pronged. I like being in sink or swim situations where I like um, I like the pressure of waking up every day and being responsible to you know build out an amazing team and to accomplish goals together. And specifically for for cannabis, I think my special ingredient is the having the confidence and the imagination to know that perception of cannabis CBD and now THC in the near future 
is going to become accepted and people are are going to be using it that have never thought they were going to use it in their whole life. And the toxicity levels for cannabis relative to alcohol and cannabis our whole lives in school, we've been taught is a gateway drug. I think there are statistics and reality suggests that alcohol is much more of a gateway drug Mm -hmm. than cannabis. And that if you replace alcohol consumption with cannabis, a lot of good things happen specifically with your health. And I think the laws are very behind on this whole trend. And that in order to lead the way, in order to have change the perception around cannabis, you need new companies that are that are ran by people that have the best intentions for their customers, for their communities, and for the overall health and growth of an industry. Mm-hmm. And not it's something that I could not believe in more that there are people that are taking Xanax, Valium, and very heavy drugs to go to bed at night. If you took a 10 milligram CBD or melatonin gummy, or you took 10 milligrams of THC, that might do the trick without without the possibility of a serious addiction and serious side effects down the line. And so I think our entire way of thinking about wellness and our eagerness to prescribe drugs is is a problem Mm -hmm. and i think over time it's going to change and we want to be the brand that's leading that play i love that so i mean i've loved your whole career journey story i personally am super invested in the whole transition from the finance world to actually starting your own thing like absolutely loved everything about it and sounds like you're pressuring your boyfriend well actually we should talk separately because he actually has a very similar he he did quit his job but he and he had a very similar story told them before his bonus yeah, I mean, it was like the best situation possible. I'm like, if I did that in my industry, I would literally be blackballed and like no one would ever talk to me again. But, <laughs> it's but the yeah. Right thing usually it works out. It's a strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it ended up working out amazingly for him. But I just, I, I just really, really love your story. And the whole point of the podcast is really to go down this story, get into those like really tough spots on like how you actually made the, the leap. But it's also for that person that may be in that role right now, not knowing what to ask themselves, like if they wanted to work in something that they're passionate about and not really even know what that is for them, or maybe they do know and don't know how to take that next step. What advice would you give to someone who's maybe in this limbo, um, but is eager to live in that um, active ingredient headspace? Absolutely. I think that every person has something that makes them uniquely them and that they do better than most people and that they enjoy it and that it comes naturally to them. And I think identifying that is tough. I think you really need to frame your mindset in terms of what you're looking for. And so I think right now, the most important currency in the world is happiness. And then I think the, for me, the, the second one is time. And so you need to decide what makes you happy 
And you might be able to back into that doing, doing things that you may not historically view as a profession. And what I mean by that is if you are, if you're the person that's always setting up your weekend plans for your friends and you're the one that when you get to the restaurant, you're the one that has to talk to the, the host and to try to squeeze in yourself at a good table versus Mm -hmm. that's a skill set that is transferable to doing a lot of different things. I think you need to recognize those little those little things that you're better at than than most people and that come naturally to you. And then the second part is how do you apply that skill set into spending your time and creating something that you believe in and that you are passionate about? Because it's much 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 easier to work on something every day all day when you're passionate about it and that you believe in it and i think that it's like a seesaw that most people think most people think about it as a seesaw in terms of i could have happiness or i could have money and most people are like all right i'll do the money for a while and then i'll worry about my happiness there is a way to have both And I think that it starts by identifying what makes you uniquely you and just observing your own behaviors and observing where you feel like you're in the zone and that you feel really comfortable. And for everyone, it's different. And guess what? The internet has allowed any industry, you are able to monetize pretty much anything that you're passionate about right now. Mm -hmm. And, And what I mean by that is, let, it's, let's say you love craft beers and you hate your nine to five. Why don't you create a YouTube channel and every night you review one craft beer and you give it a score you, you, mm-hmm. and you start promoting it online. And even if over time you have 5,000 followers, there might be three small craft brewers that are willing to pay you three grand a month Mm -hmm. to promote their product. And all of a sudden that six grand is close to what you're getting paid now from your salary. And you automatically have a business Mm -hmm. and you're working for yourself and you have unlimited time. Like that is just like a, that's a small example, but I feel like, I was guilty of this is like, I didn't perceive myself as working hard unless I was in the office from six to six. And I took that from finance to startup life. And it doesn't, it work. doesn't work. Out. <laughs> it no, you're really like budgeting your creativity out. time. You're like figuring out at what point you can actually do those like little tiny tasks that are so, so annoying. And you know, it's just all over the place. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I think there is a lot of value in freedom of time and being able to um, decide how you spend your time. I think that needs to be weighted against compensation mm-hmm. and you need to, determine, okay, how much money do I need to have coming in to live a fulfilled and happy lifestyle? And if that is PJs and, and private golf courses and, insane vacations 
then you need to come up with a plan that could get you there. Mm -hmm. But for most people, it's not that, you know, a hundred percent. Like if you actually boil, boil it down, it's like a really good coffee, like a comfortable place to sit. (laughs) Outdoor time. Yeah. um, Spending time with friends, eating decent food and then, okay, like, come up with a plan of how to get there and back into it through detail and, and, and numbers. And I love this. Free. And that's research. Research is free. And so if you do leave to start a company, whatever industry you're pursuing, when you're talking to future partners, future employers or future investors, because many businesses require capital to get off the ground, you they you don't want them to be able to ask you a question about your industry and you'd be like i'm not sure about that you want to know your industry better than anybody else in the room and you want to be able to walk in and have both sides of the debate and be able to formulate your own opinion based on you know how you're thinking about it i mm-hmm. think that knowledge and that um research is free and it is the contributor to having conviction when you're going out and pitching your idea to you know future partners amazing so i always close out the podcast asking kind of like a lighter fun question what is something that you literally have to do we call it the literal active ingredient like for me it's iced coffee like i need to have an iced coffee every day what's something that you actually have to have do consume it can also be someone that you have to see it can be making your bed it can be anything Sweat. Sweat. Yeah. Every day. Every day. What yeah. have you been doing yeah. in in COVID times? COVID times, I have tried to go on runs. Um, yeah. So, like in March, I was going on runs and doing like online classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, mo- yeah, actually, I've ran more this summer than I've ever <laughs> ran prior to college. Because um, you know studios aren't open, mm-hmm. but I do hot yoga twice a week. Um, mm. For me, I do it for the mental benefit to feel my ability to handle stress after yeah. sweating is significantly higher than if I don't get a sweat in. So I've learned that about myself. So I try to get a sweat each morning, and yeah, my sort of ability to handle bad news is is much stronger throughout the day. I love that. Where can everyone find you and find Highline Wellness? Um, my Instagram is chrisroth16 um, and highlinewellness.com and or at Highline Wellness on Instagram. Thank you. This was incredible. I'm so excited to put it out there. I think use uh, Chris30 for 30% off. Thank you so much for doing this. This was. I feel like I'm going to have to have you back on because I feel like I have 20,000 more questions to ask you, but this was Thank great. You. Yeah. Oh my God. Of course. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you can take two seconds of your time to rate and review us, it would really mean the world and help us out a ton. If you guys want more inspiration and quotes from the episode, you can check us out on Instagram at active ingredient. See you next week.